Welcome to Good or Bad with A.J. Jacobs and James Altucher. This is the show where we take a big topic and we try to figure out whether it's good for the world or bad for the world. And this week's episode is privacy. So privacy, is it a fundamental right that is critically endangered by big tech and big government and various other bigs? Or is it an annoying vestige of past times? Is it an excuse for scoundrels to do bad things and an impediment to progress? Or perhaps a little bit of both. Uh, So I was thinking, though, before this episode, you and I are kind of outliers because we uh, sort of give away our privacy more than your average Gen Xer, at least. Maybe not your millennials. Yeah, I mean, you you basically... I would say the, I always describe it as the A.J. Jacobs technique. So if you're going to write about, let's say, a topic like the Bible, many authors, you know, analyze and theorize and philosophize about different texts in the Bible, and they write their book and no one reads it. You, <laughs> on the other hand, you you have this immersive technique where you take a topic and you don't philosophize about it, you do it. So you wrote The Year of Living Biblically, where you actually live every single day by all the tenets of the Old Testament. And, you know, you, you then you document your life through the book and you tell every, pretty much every aspect of what happens to you, including, you know, your solutions when Julie, your wife, is having a period. And, <laughs> and, and then in your book, My Life as an Experiment, you talk about arguments you have with Julie and, and how you outsource the arguments to India. You've also talked about measuring whether you love your wife or not. Like you right. talk about all these really personal things. And and for me, I originally was writing about finance and then I realized, you know, everybody I meet in the finance world and particularly like on in the news part of it is just lying all the time. Hmm. So I was totally, trans- I started writing totally transparently about going broke repeatedly and being depressed and even suicidal and how I came back from that. And I found, A, not only were people much more interested because everyone can relate to that, but B, a lot of finance people would tweet, you know, in response, is James going crazy? But then they would privately email me, hey, I've been there also, you know, good luck. And and then the other thing I noticed, everyone told me, no one's going to ever invest money in any of your projects again. You're always talking about going broke. But I found more than ever, people were would reach out to me to invest because I was the one person they felt they could trust. So being being transparent or allowing people into your life uh, actually engenders, you know, it, it creates this vulnerability on your side and engenders trust with other people. So some kind, sometimes releasing consciously releasing aspects of your privacy, you know, allows people to say, oh, this is a person I could talk to or I could trust. So having no privacy actually helped your business. Definitely. My business was about loss of privacy, basically. (laughs) You know, the flip side, though, is, you know, all the kind of scandalous things we've been hearing about the past two years about how, you know, your data is all available. You know, as George Gilder, the futurist, told me, if you can't if you're getting something for free, mm-hmm. then you're the product. <laughs> so with Google, we get search services for free. With Facebook, we get you know communication for free. But the flip side is we're the product. They take all of our data and sell it to advertisers. The New York Times columnist Farhad Manju, he says, he wrote an article called, Maybe It's Time to Panic About Privacy. So 
Maybe it is. Maybe I should. And my mom has been yelling at me for years, like, what are you doing T telling people all your secrets? But, um, but maybe we should start by just defining privacy. Which is very complicated itself, by yeah. the way. Uh, the dictionary definition is a state of being free from being observed or disturbed by other people. That's a good start. Louis Brandeis, a famous lawyer, the, the Brandeis University is named after him, is also a former Supreme Court justice, wrote a famous essay in 1890 called The Right to Privacy, hmm. suggesting that privacy is actually baked into the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution, and future courts have sort of upheld that. But and the Fourth Amendment is which one? You can't be searched or have any assets seized. Oh, right. Yet to me, privacy is also about the control of information. Who knows what you do and what your behaviors are? And I did a little thought experiment, so stay with me here. But I thought about a world where there's zero privacy and then a, a world where there's total privacy. No one gives any information about themselves, uh, even voluntarily. So... Zero privacy, obviously a nightmare. Everyone knows your browser history, including your searches of Menudo or whatever. What, what would be your most embarrassing search browser history? Believe it or not, I don't use the computer that much oh. for these very reasons. It's not so much worried about someone hacking. I don't want advertisers to inappropriately target me. Right. Um, so, so I'm very careful about what I search for. Yeah. Uh, I usually just search on my name. I do vanity searches. Nice. All right. <laughs> or I search on AJ Jacobs' name. Sure. So, so Arnold of... Stephen Jacobs, your original name, by the no! way. No, you busted me. So you have you have invaded my privacy. Yes. Are you? Uh, you told me earlier though. You you wish you had more time so you could be more invasive. Yeah, like when I was thinking about this podcast yesterday, I was like, "Damn, if I had if I had just had like maybe an extra, realistically two three weeks, I could have definitely done something interesting in terms of invading your privacy." Like what? Well, you know, for instance, I know the names of all your neighbors, right? So not because I visited you, but because it's freely available information online. So, and I know you've written about in my life as an experiment, you've written about that you use a nanny. So I could call your house during the day. I could say, hey, um, you know, I'm the nurse taking care of so-and-so neighbor. Uh, you know, our Wi-Fi is down. Can I just, I see your Wi-Fi. Can I just have the password for 15 minutes? There's some problem. You know, I could figure out some social engineering way <laughs> right. to get into your computer network. Chances are, uh, there are vulnerabilities that you're not aware of in your home computer network, which could lead to access to your your printer, Alexa, whatever you use, your Nest thermostat, uh, your your Mac or Windows machine, hopefully a Windows machine because that has more vulnerabilities. And then I could start, you probably, like most people, have a very basic password on the um, administrator of your Windows machine if you have one, and then I can get access to all the files. Yeah, so there's very sure. simple ways just using so what's called social engineering, not like pure hacking, but like a combination of psychological influence combined with hacking techniques to have access right. to, to everything. That's one way. There's many ways to get access to your, to your particular data. <laughs> Interesting and scary. The one thing you can have is my printer. It's such a piece of shit. If you can figure out how to make it work, that would be awesome. 
all right, I could do that. Also, there's lots of ways I could, you know, if I inundate you and and your wife and your kids with so-called, what's called a phishing attack, like, AJ, I, this is James, are you in this very, you know, or I can find other Facebook friends, I could make them send you an email like, AJ, I just tagged you in this video, check it out. And then you click on that, that downloads a freely available keystroke logger onto your uh, computer or your laptop then I'll be able to track all your um, passwords. And then from then on out, I can um, log into all of your accounts. So that's very simple to do. It happens every day. Uh, you know, you have to be very careful about this. Well, stuff. I am delighted that you didn't have two or three weeks. <laughs> I am very thankful you're you a busy man. My friend Kevin Roos, who's a technology writer, wrote about uh, social engineering and how they would play audio of crying babies in the background and impersonate the wife and be like, my kid is crying. You got to help me. I need the password to our bank. I mean, there, there, there's so many. I mean, even Kevin Mitnick, who is a famous cyber hacker who went to jail for hacking. And he, when he got out of jail or in jail, he was not allowed to be close even to a whistle because they thought by using a whistle, he could send messages to any phones and launch nuclear weapons. That's how paranoid. Wow. But he even admitted he mostly did social engineering to do the initial hacking. Yeah, that's and, so interesting. And, and I will say in the 90s, it was very simple, not anymore, but it was very simple to hack people's emails, particularly in a corporate environment. And almost all corporations were unsafe about how they protected emails. So I used to do tricks all the time where I would send email from like legal at mtv.com to a friend of mine and start this whole thing just as a prank. But then I felt bad and I admitted it pretty quickly. And, and then I even also sent to my boss an email to him from the CEO of HBO and said, you, you know, Bruce, come see me immediately. You know, we need to discuss. And he, I would see him running past and I had to like tell him, no, 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 no I was just kidding. <laughs> Uh, yeah, my, I remember when I first started dating my wife, we, we weren't supposed to have an inter-office romance, so I would disguise my emails by sending her really boring headers, uh, subject headers like, uh, you know, third quarter results, and then I'd you know, pour my heart out in the email. I doubt, <sighs> A, I doubt it worked, and B, I doubt anyone cared even about the, uh, the pouring out of my heart. I'm not sure. I, I think people do... In, in the corporate level, I think that is a common occurrence where people read emails. Because I remember at one place I worked, somebody was trashing the editor-in-chief of this publication and making um, uh, insults that would not be appropriate, and he was fired. So somebody really? clearly read his email, and he was and he was fired by the guy. Interesting. So anyway, yes, there, if you imagine a world with no privacy, it's obviously a nightmare. The browser searches, aside from you, who only search yourself. And people can Facebook live you while you're going to the bathroom. It's obviously Big Brother on steroids, terrible. But the other side is also not a great world because if you have uh, complete and total privacy and no one shares anything about themselves, that means severely psychotic people can just go out and buy guns. Um, there won't be any taxes, which I know you might like, but... Uh, you wouldn't have any roads or, or firefighters because the government wouldn't know how much you made because everyone is 
the right to keep their everything private. And if you take it to the extreme, people wouldn't tell you their names. They wouldn't, you know, it, it would be a weird world. So there's got to be a balance, a middle side. You just defined what I'll call the Jacobs curve. So <laughs> on one axis is the level of privacy in your society. On the other axis is, let's call it the happiness of society. It, let's assume that can be measured. So it's basically going to start at the bottom at 0% privacy, there's going to be zero happiness. It's going to go up. So some somewhere around 50% happiness is, or 50% privacy, give or take, is max happiness for society. And then it's going to go back down to zero. So that's like the Laffer curve, which I believe has to do with uh, the income tax rate, that basically 0% taxes and 100% taxes are bad for society as somewhere in the middle is peak you know, well-being for society. I love that. The, the Laffer curve is a famous economics thing from from that still applies. And you made, yeah, you made it sound so mathematical and makes us look good. But then you have to decide, like, you know, do you want data used for advertising purposes? Some mm. people might say yes, because they don't want to see ads about diapers. They want to see ads about shaving cream or I don't know, yeah. <laughs> or sports. And, uh, but then there's the, the, uh, you know, flip side, we saw in the election that data, you know, w was able to kind of steer opinions in critical fringe states by having access to, to too much data about people. It's interesting how privacy concerns have changed since that paper uh, in, written in 1890, the right to privacy. He was concerned because photography had just been started to be used in newspapers. So he was concerned that this was an invasion of privacy. But even to the point where he thought billboards should be banned as opposed to ads in newspapers. So an ad in a newspaper, you have a choice to buy that newspaper or not. A billboard ad, you have no choice. You have to pass it if it's on your road to work, for instance. So he thought that was an invasion of privacy. Invasion now, of your you... visual privacy. Yeah. I love that I agree with him that billboards should be banned. I mean, I wonder how many accidents have been caused. Maybe only like five or ten, but... Still, I don't want to see that. Uh, and, and there's an irony there, by the way, because the average billboard says something like, you know, have you been hurt in a car accident? Call this number. These attorneys will help you. And I'm thinking, is this your target audience, the people actually driving on it's a highway? It's good for business. It's yeah. like a positive feedback loop. Right. Historically, a lot of cultures had very, very little privacy. So it is really about when and where you live, what your tolerance is. I wrote an article on like, how the Puritans were stunningly good at privacy invasion. So they would they would have these th these snoopers called tithing men, and their job was to peek into the neighbors' windows and spy on their every move to make sure they weren't doing anything naughty, like going for a stroll on the Sabbath or something terrible like that. Well, so they had no privacy back then. We're all primates, so primates, you know. Uh, uh, assemble in in groups of 25 to 30 you know throughout the past several million years and humans are primates that have gone beyond that number but below 30 you know everything about every other person in your tribe yeah. and you know uh, from 30 to 150 you know about every other person not directly but many of the people through gossip so gossip had this use of um i might not know you but my friend Dan says, oh, yeah, AJ is a good guy. He does this, this, this. So your privacy has just been invaded by me, but for good purposes. So now I know through gossip whether I could trust you or not if we go hunting. But now our brains are wired 
for that level of privacy. We're okay with it. But now in the millions, lack of privacy has a much deeper ramification, but our brains don't even understand what that means. We're, we're wired for millions of years to think in terms of tribal privacy, right. where it may or may not be okay still, but at least we're fine with the members in our community roughly knowing about us. But now our community is the entire world. Right. Yeah. I think that's really interesting and true. Just to go back to the historical lack of privacy, in ancient Rome, going to the bathroom was not considered a private act. They would have these public restrooms where they would have toilets next to one another. So instead of going to a restaurant and ordering a meal, you'd go and, and sit next to your friend and take a dump. So it's really very culturally constrained. And, and now we do the same thing, but there's just like a wall with a three-inch gap at the bottom of the wall for some reason. <laughs> Why do they put that gap at the bottom of the wall? So you're like going to the bathroom right next to someone. They're, yeah. they're inches from you, and that should be private. I, I can't go into the bathroom when there's anybody else in there. But yeah. but I have a question for you related to this and, yes. and, and related to vomitoriums, which is – in 1993, you posted on Usenet on a message board uh, <laughs> wanting to know what movies contain scenes where a person who suddenly gets psychologically jarring news vomits. <laughs> I really? I am terrified and horrified. One of the movies you came up with was The Crying Game, which I never saw. Uh what the hell was I asking that for? I assumed you were writing an article about vomit in movies. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, if that's the worst thing you found, thank God. In June of 1994, you needed someone to drive a car from Berkeley to New York. Do you remember that? Interest, no, no interest. I was moving back to New York. From Berkeley? From Berkeley. You, you did post in June 15th that you needed someone to drive your car. And are you just using Google or are you using the dark web or what the hell are you doing? Yeah, so there's lots of types of searches. There's Google. There is Tor, which is kind of this dark web aspect. And then Google, you know, there used to be on the internet pre-web new, um, news message boards called sure. Usenet. And I those, think I used Usenet. Yeah, I know you did. Uh, <laughs> and there's archives of all those uh, texts. So it's just, there's various ways to search those those texts. Oh my uh, God. Or, or there were like these BBS things. They're right. all kind of tied together. Well, let me, I had a little bit of an outline, which we kind of abandoned, I, I also know all fine. your phone numbers, by the way. Do you really? Yeah. What's my current phone number? Well, your landline or your cell? Well, I guess you know my cell. But yeah, if you can figure out my landline. Do you want me to say it? Sure. 212. Uh, you can tell me when to stop. Okay. Four, Keep nine, six, one. Blah, 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 blah. Right. <laughs> it's not that anyone's going to call me. I thought we could talk about how lack of privacy might make our world better. Because I think it's, it's a more interesting and, and tougher uh, argument. Uh, everyone knows that having your privacy invaded can be horrible, but what about the other side? So I have three examples of how we need our privacy invaded for a good world. The first is pretty obvious. Too much privacy is dangerous. Too much privacy can endanger the health of the public. So you can have uh, psychotics uh, buying guns and no one can stop them. And you mean that doesn't happen now? <laughs> Well, that's even worse than now. I was listening to the history of birth certificates, and uh, mm. until the 19th century, there was no birth certificates. Uh, but child labor activists who wanted to ban child labor, like 
we got to have a record. So the government started issuing birth certificates and the parents were freaking out like, that's not your business, how wow. old my kid is. So if you want to stop some of these horrible practices, you have to invade privacy a little. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. You brought this up before we started taping. Anonymity and total privacy enables people to be real assholes, like trolls on the internet. If everyone had their name and face attached to their account, I don't think you'd see nearly as much horrible, uh, uncivil behavior on the internet. The one time I was so upset, uh, this was in January 2018, and people were very upset about some article or whatever, and <laughs> it was three in the morning, and people were just trashing me nonstop, and I should just have ignored it. I should have just slept, and it would have passed like it always does, but I said, look, if anyone has a problem with me, they can call me right now. Here's my number. Call me. And for the next 24 hours, people were calling me. And A, they were usually surprised that I picked up. So they didn't quite know what to say at first. But then actually some well-known people called me and like, oh, I had a problem with this, this, and this. And I would talk to them. And then they would go. Once you talk to people, like in any situation, if people think you're reasonable, they're going to say, okay, well, I get it now. And so pe some people did go back on Twitter and say, I just spoke with James and this was very reasonable. I understand where he's coming from. And basically, the big argument here is, is you need, for national security, you need some invasion of privacy as well. Uh, so, you know, you can track some of the people who are plotting to blow up the world. If you take this argument to the extreme, that we need to invade people's privacy to protect the world, you get to this argument by Nick Bostrom, the philosopher at Oxford. Have you heard this one? He talks about how nuclear bombs and other massively destructive technology, they're becoming easier and easier to make. So if this continues, imagine in 50 years, using gene editing, anyone, any of the 7, 10 billion people on Earth can make a deadly pandemic in your kitchen that could wipe out of humanity or, or the equivalent of a nuclear bomb. Uh, and the only way, he argues, that we might be able to prevent this is to have Big Brother to the nth degree, like a totally authoritarian government where every movement, every arm, every finger movement is monitored so you don't get the one in a million crazy nihilist who blows up the world. But, How, what do you say to that? But I would argue he's that's correct theoretically, but on the one hand, you get into a 1984 George Orwell scenario where Big Brother controls everything including you know or you get into a minority report scenario where they know your thoughts so well they can predict a crime before they can arrest you before you commit the crime right so there's there's issues there that are pretty scary but also my argument is that in reality is that those technologies for instance already exist and there already is in incredible government surveillance that we have no idea about uh as if you knew the ways in which your data was known, you would be shocked. And uh, uh, it's it's probably a hundred times more than you realize. And again, for probably for evolutionary reasons, you don't even know how much data you have, whether it's from the your your genes to your phone conversations to all your texts. All of this stuff is scanned by something. Not the genes as much, but the texts and emails and and your movements are seen by every camera. Uh, you know, was there like a hundred thousand cameras in New York City on every corner? 
so so your data is already out there. People are already tracking it. There are companies that look at every bank transaction and try to detect if you, AJ Jacobs, is doing something statistically significantly unusual or statistically significantly related to somebody who is doing something unusual. So you're already being tracked. Well, what do you think about that, though? If All right, let's assume that we do have technology now that people could use to blow up the world. Uh, I I do think it's going to get easier. But suppose we do have people who can access that technology and uh, assume that the government is tracking us so much more than we know. What do you think of that? Well, I think we're 98% there, and that might be the right number, 98 or 99%, because they have, so they say, and I've been hearing this ever since 9-11, they have stopped thousands and thousands of, you know, terrorist planning or terror, you know, potential acts of terrorism. Uh, I... Did I ever tell you this story? I once had the FBI visit me in um, like December 2011. And they, they can I tell you this story? No, I love it. So they, they rang my doorbell and I could see through a, a video camera uh, and they held up a badge and they're like, NYPD. And I got scared. I'm like, what did I do? So I, I let them come up. But before I opened the door, I'm, I'm like, you know, who are you guys? And they they said, uh, actually, we're from the FBI. And I'm like, why didn't you say FBI downstairs? And they said, we didn't want to scare anyone. And so we said NYPD. And I'm like, why do you think NYPD is less scary than FBI? So I let them in and they talked to someone who had talked to someone who, uh, you know, heard me say something about something and they wanted to talk more about it. It was nothing innocent. And they ended up hanging out for a while. We were shooting pool at a pool table at the time. And I asked them, are there a lot of things that you're stopping? And he said, you wouldn't, you can't even imagine. Like we're stopping everything. So there's so much stuff going on. And so I presume more of the same is still happening. (laughs) Oh, so to answer your point about Nick Bostrom though, I think we're already 98 or 99% there. I think 100% gets dangerous and you can't get to 100%. Because again, there's going to be, there's always going to be more tools to develop. The the people who are doing bad things in in general are smarter than the people. Protect. It's better to be offensive than defensive because you can't pl- figure out everything defensively. It's, it's better to be on the offensive. Well, I I hope you're wrong because otherwise our world is going to blow up. Like if the bad guys are always ahead of the good guys. I think I think a, a gene edited pandemic is more than anything else is probably the likely. If there is to be an end of the world in the next hundred or an end of civilization in the next hundred years, it is likely to come from a gene edited pandemic versus anything else. Um, Okay, so I have a second reason why we should allow people to invade our privacy, and that is it's just so convenient. It's just so nice. You know, if Amazon, they make good recommendations. Netflix. They know what I watched, but it helps me. Like I watch, I love Brooklyn Nine-Nine. So Netflix said, why don't you watch Cuckoo with Andy Samberg? I never heard of it. Oh my God, I never heard of that. I love Andy Samberg. It's delightful. So, you know, I'm with Waze, I'm driving and they'll tell me, oh, look, there's a gas station nearby. Or or there's a a traffic jam coming up. Yeah. Or there's a police car, three cars ahead of you. Right. Uh, 
And I don't have to type my credit card into Amazon every day. I mean, it makes life so much better. So how much are we willing to give up to have this much better life? I agree with you. I like the fact that ads are so targeted. Uh, I like, you know, there's times when you have to watch out if the ads are weirdly targeted. I don't know. And if people are looking over your shoulder, but. uh, Well, you should be only getting ads about you. Since you only search yourself. Well, on Amazon, though, I'll buy things and get oh, recommendations. Gotcha. So, uh, uh, you know, and then you can argue again, like this guy did, that certain types of advertising in and of itself is an invasion of privacy. But I like that. The, and, and you can argue on political advertising that they're, you're seeing only one skew of opinions because they're targeting what you like to open versus. Totally. You know, so, th- so well, there's that's a the there. huge downside we were going to get to later is that. Yeah, they will force you, these algorithms will force you into a corner and they breed extremism. I think YouTube's algorithm has been disastrous for politics because they, if you watch a slightly right-wing YouTube, then it'll be like, oh, he likes the right wing and eventually you'll be a neo-Nazi. So, uh, but, but we'll get to that later. But so, yeah, it is, it is convenient. Um, all right, so then this is an, an odd one about the the upside of privacy invasion and i'm still working it out but follow me here for a second i think that secrecy sometimes impedes social progress so you think about how everyone was secret and private about their sexuality uh until maybe 40 50 years ago there were so many gay people who suffered so much because they didn't know that whatever, 5 10%, whatever the number is, that there are millions of other gay people out there. But is that a privacy issue or a cultural issue? Like, if, if everybody kind of registered gay or straight and that was like a forced, you know, invasion of privacy, would that have solved the problem or actually made it worse? Well, I think you're right. It, it wouldn't be, I, I wouldn't want people to have to answer on their, you know, on the census, are you gay or straight? But I think having them having privacy be less important culturally would make it the people were more open to talking and and let me give you one other example on this because um Cass Sunstein just wrote a book about social change he's a professor at Harvard and he argues one of the prom- one of the reasons it takes a while to change is because everyone is so private and they're not telling the world how they really feel and he cites this one amazing study in Saudi Arabia where they asked all these men who were married do you do you want would you be okay with having your wife get a job and the vast majority said yeah sure and then they said well what do you think other husbands think and they're like oh no one else I'm the only one who feels this way well it, once they informed these men no actually the vast majority of husbands are okay with it it changed society radically. Women were actually applying for jobs. So having this secrecy and privacy was was holding back. Yeah, but uh, let's look at the flip side of that, which is, you know, because a lot of our society is dependent on technological innovation, yeah. often there's some degree of secrecy and privacy required to innovate because your incentive to innovate is to be out there first and so you can make the most amount of money that's the incentive to come up with a new medicine that cures cancer now 
obviously it would be great if it was all altruistic, our incentives, but they're not. And so many inventions are made because there's this assumption of privacy. The telephone would not have been made if uh, there was zero privacy. I think that's a hugely important point. Like you need some level of privacy and secrecy for progress to occur, especially technological or even government. I remember reading about how the the founding fathers, when they were writing the Constitution, it was locked down. No one was allowed to talk to the press. No one leaked anything. Really? I wonder why. Well, because they knew that if anything leaked out, there would be a public outcry and people would be like, no, and it would never get done. Mm. The Constitution would never have been written. So without this crazy uh, conspiratorial secrecy, there would be no Constitution, which is very strange. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, but the flip side, too, is is that open source research, it, it kind of makes progress faster. But again, that's more on the altruistic side. At some point, there's a, a, a profit incentive, particularly as if it costs a lot of money to invent. Right. On the flip side. that We say that like 400 times per episode. <laughs> because we are uh, talking about good or on the flip side, bad. Exactly. <laughs> um, and this one, I think, is related to this idea of privacy can sometimes be constraining, is the idea of liberation. When you have no privacy, in some senses, it's horrible. And I did this experiment, as you know, uh, radical honesty, where it's this theory that you never lie, but more than that, you say whatever's on your mind. So like you want to sleep with your wife's sister, you tell your wife and you tell your sister. So in some senses, yes, horrible. But in Is that a Freudian sense, slip, by the way, that you said you tell your sister? <laughs> <laughs> oh, interesting. Yes. Now, see, look at that. I have my I feel my privacy, privacy being invaded. But the basic idea is tell everyone everything. And in some senses, it, in many senses, it's horrible. But in some senses, it's totally liberating because you don't have to feel that you're keeping things. You don't have to remember your lies. Um, I agree with that. So there is there is something to complete lack of privacy. I mean, your your chapter on radical honesty in um, my life as an experiment, uh, I think was a really good one. In that sometimes it could just be too radical, but but in general, I think integrity is is very important. One other thing that I thought it was really interesting that historically, voting was not always private. Really? Yeah. So you can know who people voted for. You would. Vote by voice uh, in the early history of of America, and the downside, of course, is that you know if you have an authoritarian leader and you vote against him, then you'll have your head chopped off. But the good part is, it encouraged people to vote for the common good instead of for their own private interests. Let's move on to some of the good parts of of keeping your privacy, and one of them is what. What you just mentioned, one of them is freedom from manipulation. Like the more mm. these companies and government know about you, the more they can manipulate you. And I read about this amazing new technology that this professor has devised. And uh, basically, he'll look on your Facebook page and find your closest friends and then do an amalgam of their face. So he'll merge their faces to create a new person and you don't recognize that person, but somehow instinctively you're like, oh, I trust this person. So this person will be saying, you know, you should buy Geico insurance. 
and you'll be like, oh, I really should because that nice person I feel really warmly about does. Or imagine like if you still had an, a girlfriend you were pining over and like a, a version of her is telling you to do things. It's so easy Oh my God, that's manipulate. amazing. That's a great dating uh, app. Uh, uh, a great idea for a dating app is basically you take the amalgamation of all the women your Facebook friends with and then you put it into the into a dating site and it matches you to all the women who cl most closely match that face and sets and and if you match theirs then it sets you up on a date i love it i also that's a business plan i love that that's very altuturian that <laughs> you take something and turn it into a business plan but 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 you know <laughs> re re related to that because because that's very fascinating about the our biological reaction to faces we're familiar with but related to that is uh you know, when you go on vacation, what do you do? You post photos on Facebook of you're on vacation. So this kind of social invasion, not invasion of privacy, but people who have bad intent know you're not in your house so they could rob your house. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, that's, I mean, that's, I think that's another point that is very important. Should we voluntarily a lot of us share our information and and is oversharing it may feel good at the time but is it bad for you in the future and bad for the world i did a book on uh, on health and there was this app called uh, bowel mover pro and it was part of this you every time you moved your bowels you would make a note you would say what kind what it looked like you know the consistency and then it had a sharing aspect so you could tweet to your friends about your latest bowel movement and to me that was like the epitome of oversharing gone wrong it's like we need as a society to pull back and stop sharing so much i think the world might be a better place that's that's i agree and this comes from two people who <laughs> overshare i think the sharing on facebook we tend to share we overshare but we overshare the good parts right so right so people are depressed Right, you look at people online, they're having a wonderful life. So maybe Facebook, maybe our, our privacy should be invaded and we should be forced to share, you know, I just had a big fight with my wife. I, you know, my kid just failed an exam because that's a more realistic view of the world and then you wouldn't have this depression on uh, from people looking at Facebook. Might be a good exercise to try for every positive thing you share, share something negative. <laughs> I love that. I mean, I want... You could also design an algorithm where everyone's the horrible things in their lives pop up on your feed so that you feel better by comparison. Yeah. Or I would challenge people to write a resume and post on Facebook of all the things you failed at that you're embarrassed <laughs> you failed at. Like, oh, I was thrown out of school or I was fired from this job for these reasons. I was caught stealing paper clips and like build a resume like that and just. I love that. Have you done that? Yeah, I've, I've done that. You did. What did you put? Because you are the master of sharing your. Well, own I was thrown out of graduate school. I I basically uh, convinced a professor to change my grade in undergrad, so I had a GPA good enough to graduate. I wasn't going to graduate, you know, and on and on. I love it. I want to see that resume. All I right. think it's great. I'll, I'll write it up again. I'll, I I could probably write it better now. I have more <laughs> failures since then. I wrote that in 2011, I think. Um, all right. Another good part of privacy is. It's just, it's an obvious one, but it's huge. The big brother, the freedom from tyranny. I mean, if you have no privacy, um, tyrants can control your life. And we're already seeing this 
to some extent here, but especially in China. I mean, reading these stories terrifies me. The the facial recognition, you know, in one city they have facial recognition set up so that if you jaywalk, it recognizes you, and then they have a dedicated Twitter feed of like, hey, look, everybody, here's the jaywalker, and it's just like shame culture and I do not want to live in that. I'm not moving to that city. Before we wrap up, I have one last problem with invasion of privacy. And this is from Farhad Manju, the New York Times columnist, talks about this very well, how it really enables discrimination. So there's this new gadget that's sort of a, a door. Uh, it's supposed to help you when people ring your doorbell. So, And the idea is if someone looks sketchy then uh it'll alert you but what does sketchy mean like that it's sort of uh you know it it could lead very easily to racism because you know if you say oh this person looks a little sketchy and he happens to be african-american then every time right there's a there's a there's sort of like a digital profiling aspect of this totally that's uh that's worrisome so it's very worrisome so yeah maybe Having more privacy and stopping this kind of thing will uh, will make for a fairer world. Let, yeah. let me ask you this, because I have my opinion on this. Do you think in this current world, are we at the right spot of privacy in terms of laws, in terms of reality, in terms of what you freely give, in terms of what you are not aware you're giving? Or do you think we're too much in one direction or the other? That is a great question. I would say it depends on the area. In some areas, we are so way out there. Our privacy is invaded way too much. So, for instance, my aunt, she puts in a fake birth date. Uh, so she makes herself 35 instead of whatever she is, 70, 75, because she hates getting the wrinkle cream ads. Like, it just depresses her. So they, I think, are bad for our mental health. Um, on the other hand... If Nick Bostrom is right, and in 50 years, you know, your average person can make a pandemic in their kitchen that wipes out humanity, where I don't know the solution. I kind of think we're at a good spot, but you have to be aware of it, and you have to be, you have to be paranoid. You have to assume Facebook is selling your data because they are. Yeah. Um, you have to assume Google is selling your data because they are. And you could use so so you have to be aware, and you have to decide. Like I could use Duck.com instead of Google, which is a search engine that doesn't track your data. Totally right. So I think we're at the right spot. I just think awareness of it is not at the right spot, and so that probably needs to go way up. And we all so privacy our... education needs to go up. Yeah. And, and then culturally, again, look at this shift from now to the 1890s, where even a billboard was questionable as to whether that was an invasion of privacy. Now, clearly, it's not. So. This is a cultural definition that changes, but no matter what, awareness is important because there's so much information that we're giving away freely that you need to be aware of the worst case scenario and that it can happen to you and just be aware of it. Your opinions could be manipulated. Somebody could get hold of the Alexa data. So even if you can't change the settings, unplug Alexa when you're not using it. Yeah. That'll solve the problem. To Things me, like the, big, the biggest takeaway is that we got to get rid of billboards because they're <laughs> invading my visual privacy. I love that. All right. So either everything is going to hell or it's just fine as is. Love it.